Our message tonight out of Revelation chapter 6, the seven seals with the four horsemen, and explaining why there are so many denominations, right? In one of our question and answer times, someone asked that question. Well, this is the, a chapter where we see why there are so many different groups out there. Okay, so let's get into the study, starting in verse 1. Now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, right? In Revelation chapter 5, it talked about a scroll with seven seals on it. And so now it opens this chapter where the Lamb, of course, Yeshua the Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb opens one of the seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a loud voice, like thunder, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow. Okay, so it's a white horse with a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. Okay, so the white horse means victorious, coming victoriously. Uh, was an uncommon in that day, uh, and even after that day, for an army, when it went and went into battle, and it came back home as winners, they would have their commander, their king, their leader, riding on a white horse, coming into the city with a train of prisoners behind them, they have one crown on their head, and so here's the symbolism. Again, crown, he's the king, right? So he's the king on a white horse, coming victoriously, conquering, and going forth to conquer, right? And so this represents the Yeshua, the Messiah, and the gospel message, going and conquering for the Lord, gaining victories for the Lord. And so this first started with the disciples in Jerusalem, 3,000 Jewish people are immersed, plus women and children on Shavuot. And then after that, every day people are being added to the congregation and more and large immersions are taking place and continuing for about the first century. And then uh, Paul, a uh, Pharisee, um, comes to the Lord as well, accepts Messiah, and he then takes it to uh, the cities outside of Israel, outside of Judah, outside of Samaria, and going up through uh, the regions, even up to Rome, and many series, uh, synagogues throughout the area, and then also to the Gentiles as well. So taking the gospel to the then-known world within the first 70 years or so after the Messiah's death and burial and resurrection. So we have a pure faith, a very powerful experience taking place, gospel of God's people, Moving forward in faith in the Messiah, the white, pure king of kings, riding in and conquering over sin, wickedness, confusion, and um, paganism, and then coming to faith in the Lord. So the first seal, the first horse, representing that time period of a pure faith. Okay, Revelation 6, verse 4. And another horse, fiery red, went out, and it was granted to the one who sat on it to take peace from the earth. So red horse, taking peace from the earth, right? So if he's come and he's taking peace from the earth, what had to happen before he could take peace from the earth? There had to be peace on the earth, right? And so the gospel message was bringing peace to people's hearts and minds, Victory over sin, changing their lives, and giving them peace that passes understanding amidst their troubles. And so now this second horseman comes, the second seal opens up, red, fiery red, blood red, comes and takes away the peace that was there. And that people should kill one another, and there was given to him a great sword. Okay, so he's going forth with a sword and killing and taking peace away. So this is our next time period when persecutions intensified against believers and continued on until we, as we looked at the congregations, the second congregation also experienced a time of persecution and mentioned a 10-year period of time. Um, particularly we see that fulfilled with Diocletian who went forth very cruelly and we had Nero and other other emperors doing horrible atrocities and the, and the, the Colosseums and ripping believers apart, burning them at the stake. And so a persecuting time, a red horse faith time. And so the bloodstained faith from 100 or so A.D. 
to 313. And again, the 313, because that ended that 10-year period, 10 period of time, from 303 to 313 when Diocletian was doing his persecutions of God's people. So the second seal, red horse, second period of time going from John's day, as we saw Daniel did, all the prophecies, Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8 and 9, Daniel 10 and 11 and 12, going from the prophet's day, John's, Daniel's day, to the end of time. And now we're seeing John doing the same thing, the congregations, the seven seals, going from John's day, and it'll take us all the way through to the end of time. And so far, the, these two have paralleled, these two seals, paralleling pretty much with the two con first two congregations in the seven congregations that we looked in Revelation 2 and 3. Third, a third seal, and when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come and see. And I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand, right? So scales, so balancing scales, two sides to a scale, right? Connected together. So he's got these scales in his hand, riding on a black horse. And so Satan's strategy to persecute down through the ages has been to inflict persecution, right? So we had the second horse with the blood sword and the red horse and, and persecution, killing one another. And then he follows it, Satan usually follows it, with compromise, right? So he weakens us with persecution and then he tempts us to compromise in our faith, right? So a balanced scale. So, well, we'll try and balance out our our walk with the Lord and being able to keep alive and to avoid persecution. And so we'll compromise our faith, we'll hide our faith, we won't do what the Bible says sometimes, but we'll still profess to believe. And so we get this compromising balance scales coming on here. And then that's followed by the adoption of pagan practices. And so we see that historically taking place with this compromised faith coming in the next time period. In contrast, we have the white horse pure, we have the black horse, uh, error, so truth and error, Comprom uncompromising, willing to die for their faith, to compromising and giving in. And we have that with Constantine, right? Constantine comes along in the 300s and he unites the kingdom, uniting paganism and Bible faith in trying to unite them together. So again, a balanced scale, trying to balance those two groups out together. And on the bottom of the statue, it says, Constantine, by this sign, conquer. Right? So it's kind of interesting because that's it said that he had a, a vision. He saw uh, a cross in the sky, and he's told, Constantine, go forth and conquer by this sign. And so he has the sign placed on the shields and goes forth conquering, conquering like the first horse conquering, conquering like the rider of the first horse with the bow, conquering as he did with the crown, Conquering with the word of God, conquering, conquering people's hearts, taking them from Satan's grasp, liberating them with the, with the gospel. Is this the type of conquering that Constantine did? No, conquering, he goes and conquers with the sword, with killing and, and, and war and persecution and force. So not the same in any way, shape, or form as the rider on the white horse. And so then we have this time of persecution as written in a historical book, History of the Eastern Church, Page 184, the retention of the old pagan name, Dias Solis, for Sunday, is in, a, is in a great measure owing to the union, scales, union of pagan and Christian sentiment. They're trying to balance these two out, the union of the two. With which the first day of the week was recommended by Constantine to be his subject's pagan and Christian alike as the venerable day of the sun. So again, balance the pagans and the Christians, keeping them together, bringing them together with this balanced scale and calling it the venerable day of the sun. Now, this historical book says that he recommended it. Well, it's a little bit more than a recommendation. Uh, it says that anyone who, who uh, does not honor the venerable day of the sun and rest on the venerable day of the sun or who does rest on the Sabbath, the biblical Sabbath, Sabbatize, and, and the Jewish Sabbath will be persecuted. And it gives a list of the persecutions that would take place if they do not rest on Sunday, but rest on the true Sabbath, the biblical Sabbath, 
instead. So more than a recommendation. He's coming in with force, emperor force, legal force. And the Bible predicted this when it said, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, Acts 20, 29 and 30. Right? So it's a wolf among the flock, right? He's coming in after, and they're coming in. I know that they will come in among you. Right? So it's not talking about like the, the second horseman, the second seal, the persecution coming from the outside. Now the persecution is coming from within. The compromise is coming from within. A, sh a wolf in sheep's clothing. Right? So Constantine professing to believe, baptizing his whole army, making the whole nation under the banner of the sign. Uh, and so this wolf coming in among them. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Again, now that's from within, the cancer from within, disease from within, not the blows from without. Totally different setting. Next seal, this third seal, is different than the second seal. Just as the time period was then different. So we have second, second, third seal, the black horse, from 313 to about 538, when the gelling together, the, the third horn of the three horns of, Rebel, of Daniel chapter 7, plucked out, the little horn coming up into power. And again, if you missed that, then the whole Daniel series is on shalomadventure.com. And would bring us all up to date, because again, these are all parallel. It's all the same stuff. The Bible just repeating itself, repeating itself, repeating itself, with more information each time. So I looked, and behold, a fourth seal, and the fourth horse, a pale horse, and the name of him who sat on it was Death, and Hades was followed with him. So pale, and death riding on it. Right? So we went from black to pale, and now death riding on it. The seal of death, the horseman of death. And power was given him over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, with hunger, with death, and the beasts of the earth. And so what happens after we compromise our faith? What happens to our lives if we, or as a congregation or as a people group, we begin to compromise and try and mix faith with the world? We die. We right? become spiritually dead. Walking dead, we become zombies. Church history, century two. Christianity became an established religion in the Roman Empire and took the place of paganism. Christianity, as it existed in the Dark Ages, might be termed baptized paganism. So not a change taking place, but just an adaptation taking place, a mixing of the two, which is, again, then a dead faith. It's the uh, having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. And so it continued on. Professed believers continued on in the rituals, continued on in the profession, but they were dead to the Lord. They were dead, not to sin, but dead to faith. They had a dead faith. It was all ceremonies, not faith in God, not belief in God, not the word of God, but a dead formality was taking place. So aptly described with the fourth seal, the fourth horseman, pale and death riding on him and bringing death. And that's exactly what happened. And so we have a dead faith. And so an example of some of these things that came in, uh, his dead faith and, and our persecution began and continued. Now, through this time, we have the sect of Judaism that did not accept the Messiah, and they continued on in their rituals and reading the Torah and, and the Sabbath commandments and the traditions of men, that, uh, the rabbinical traditions, and continued those through this time. And here now we're seeing the two come in conflict with each other. For example, with the bubonic plague. That spread. And how did it spread? Well, because the professed believers in the Bible were not following the Bible, so they were not burying their waste. They were not abstaining from pork, and so they have these pigs living in their house with them. 
and, and um, all the waste from that and all the dirt from that. And so then rats are coming in as well. And so you've got rats around the area and rats around the houses and the rats are bringing the plague with them. And so city after city is having the plagues and people are dying. And so what do the people do? Do they say, oh, it's our fault. We're not following God. We're not following what the Torah says on how to live. And that's why this is coming. No. They look across the fields and they go, you know, there's a village over there of the Jews and they're not experiencing the plagues. They must have poisoned our water. And so they blame them. So what do they do? They go over there and slaughter them. But the reason the plague weren't in the Jewish sections was because they didn't have pigs living in their homes. They didn't have the rats. They were burying their waste. They were following the Torah uh, health principles on those aspects. And so a dead faith that goes forth with a sword and brings death as well. Some other examples here from a doctrinal catechism. So catechism is a, is a, is a book to teach doctrines, and so it goes through a question and answer type of a, a, a review. So it'll ask a question to help give a reason to give the answer. Right? So that's how it's written. So the question they pose to themselves is how... Have, have you any other way of proving that the church has power to institute festivals of precept? Right? So what proof do you have that the church has this authority to make up festivals? So the answer, had she not had such power, she could not have done that in which all modern religionists agree with her. Okay, so they're their point of authority is, well, everyone agrees with us. That's why we have the authority. That's our proof of authority. No one has questioned us. No one has said we're wrong. Everyone agrees. So we must be right. See that kind of twisted reasoning? She could not have substituted the observance of Sunday, the first day of the week, for the observance of Saturday, the seventh day. See, we did this thing. No one objected to it. We changed Sunday, Sabbath from Saturday to Sunday. We instituted our own festive, festive, festival, and no one objected. Thus, we must have authority. But that wasn't the question. The question was, how do you have authority? How, what proof do you have that you have the authority? And their proof is, we did it. Right? That's like a thief going and stealing your car and then saying, how do we know it's your car? And he says, because I have the, key, I have the car. <laughs> you know? They stole your TV. How do we know this is your TV? It's in my house. <laughs> a change for which there, was, there is no scriptural authority. So it admits there's no scriptural authority. So we're not claiming the authority given to us from the scripture. We have proof that we have our own authority to do these things because we did it. And everyone agrees with it. So that's our proof. That's a dead faith. It's professing, having a form of godliness, but denying the word of God, denying where the power is, denying the power thereof, denying the true authority. And in Daniel chapter 8, we read, he cast down truth to the ground. He did all of this and prospered. And that's what we just read from the catechism. There's no scriptural authority. We cast truth to the ground. We did it. And we prospered. Everyone agrees with us. So we must be right. How many people got in the ark with Noah? Only seven others. And all the others saying, we're right. Look, we're all out here. So the teachings of men would be substituted for the teaching of God. Another text in the Bible from Exodus chapter 20 from the Ten Commandments. You shall not, another example, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Right? And so the Jews were continuing to keep this. They were not bowing down to any idols. We're not worshiping any idols. But among the Christian faith through this time period, they were. For example, this statue in St. Peter's Cathedral of St. Peter, right? Nope. That's what it's called today. But originally it was Jupiter. 
Going back, that compromising that led to the dead faith, taking the pagan statue and just renaming him, the uniting of the two, which brings about dead faith. And now we're going to take a little view of Peter. There's a full view of Peter, the lady next to him. And then you see on the right side, you see his foot, one of his feet, and toes, right? Now there's no toes. <laughs> the toes are worn away. <laughs> it's been touched and kissed so many times that this, I don't know what it's made out of. I don't know if it's iron, it looks like iron maybe, some kind of metal statue, that the toes are worn off the statue coming to venerate a man-made statue of a man. Bringing in the traditions of men in place of the commandments of God. Thus ushered in the death, the, the dark ages. As that historical book mentioned, used that term, dark ages. So we have the dead horse, the death pale, fourth seal, taking us through the dark ages, that 1,260 year period of time. Again, we've studied that in the book of Daniel. And again, you can see that on shalomadventure.com. So the pale horse continuing through the dark ages period of time. And so during this time, there was a descent into the dark ages. It didn't happen overnight, didn't happen at one meeting. It was a slow process, substituting, substituting, sub compromise, compromise, compromise. And really it's no different than our own lives, our own lot, than in our own lives, right? We see this historically happening, but how about in our own life? We start off with a faith in God. We have this new birth experience. We have this first love experience, like I talked about the, in Ephesus, in the first congregation in, Dan, in Revelation 2. But then they lose, we lose our first love. It wanes. We plateau if we don't maintain it. We don't continue that connection with God, surrendering daily to Him, dying daily to sin and walking in faith, and sharing it with others. If we don't, we plateau, and when we plateau, we really begin to slide back. Then Satan brings persecution into our lives. Satan tries to distract us. He gets our eyes off on tangent, maybe because of health, and so we're not feeling well, and so we miss services, and we don't read, and we don't pray, or all we're doing is praying about our problem and our health, and so he persecutes us, or our finances, or whatever area he's He's persecuting us in. Maybe it's in relationships. And so trouble comes, persecution comes, and Satan tries to use that to knock us off our faith, to knock us off balance. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it draws us closer to God. That's what it should do. But sometimes it distracts us. And then we try and shake our way out of it by compromising. And so he weakens our faith. And so our boss has told us and threatened us or our neighbor or our landlord or, or persecution of, of our faith as a whole. And so that we stop making outward practices. We stop telling other people about them. We're afraid of people rejecting us. Someone unfacebooks us or, or sends a nasty thing or, or, or condemns us or yells at us or contradicts us or questions us. So we persecute. So then we compromise. We stop telling, we stop living it, we stop demonstrating it, and we begin to compromise, and compromise in other areas, in outward living, and in our heart. And then when we continue to compromise, we then end up in a dead faith. Oh, we may continue in the rituals, we may continue in the pattern, we may continue again the walking dead experience, but in our hearts we're dead. We've lost our first love. And then we just need to go back and refine it, re surrender our lives to the Lord, and get back on track. And we're going to see, historically, that's what happened as well. And so we have this period of descent, little by little by little, traditions replacing the Word of God, the Word of God becoming outlawed, penances replacing confession, and indulgences and paying for them instead of the grace of God, images brought in, Sunday switched out, Sabbath switched out for Sunday, persecutions, before it was persecutions outside, now it's persecutions from the church, like the example of going and killing the Jewish Jews in the villages or others. 
as we'll see some examples here in a minute. So we have this descent down into the Dark Ages, darker and darker and darker and darker. Why is it called the Dark Ages? The Bible was outlawed. And when we don't have the Bible, and it wasn't translated into the language of the people, the people became more and more uneducated, more and more illiterate, and don't have the Word of God, the Word of God is the light. And Yeshua is the light. And Yeshua is substituted with St. Peter and Mary and all these other things and saints. And so we have this dark period of time. No Yeshua, no word of God, thus it's dark. And when our faith becomes dark and we don't have the word of God, our intellect goes down. There's very little inventions and advancements taking place for over a thousand years. Everything's dead and stopped and just formalism and, and um, superstition. Not growing, no real major medical advances. Horrible time, a dead time, a dark, dark time. Sad time to live. But God didn't leave us there. Right? And again, that's where we descend when we plateau and, and we start substituting and, and compromising Fifth seal, verse, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. And he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for their testimony. They cried with a loud voice, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And a white robe was given to them, and they were told they should rest a little while longer until both the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who would be killed as they were, was completed. So it's describing a time when martyrs are dying and have died, and they're told there's going to be more martyrs. And at the end of the time of the more martyrs, then we'll bring it all together. In the meantime, you guys just continue to rest until that time. So there's a time period of martyrs. So coming out of this dark period of time, people are starting to stand for the faith. We have examples for, for one example, the Waldensians. This is a village of the Waldensians way up in the Piedmont Mountains. Um, I'd love to go there. I've got, I have a friend uh, who, uh, who lives down at the bottom of this. I've known her for about 30 years. And she leads tours up the mountains to these homes and tells the story of the Waldensians. I haven't had a chance to go and visit her and, and, and see this. I'd love to do that. But you go inside, and what were they doing inside? And the, the reason they were way up there was because they were getting killed and persecuted if they lived down in the villages, down in the valleys. So they had to go up to the mountains to hide, to be protected. And so they fled into the wilderness, in a sense. And so there they are. And what they're doing there, inside, here's a table that they used to copy the Bible on. So they had the Bible and they would write it in the language of the people and they would copy it and copy it and copy it. They studied it, they learned it, they memorized it, they taught it to their children. They had whole books memorized and they would take verses and write them on a little parchment and then they would hide it in their children's clothing and they would send their children down into the villages as merchants, as... Um, Tinkers, as salespeople, selling pots, pans, whatever different type of things. And as they came in contact with someone they felt was open to truth, they would take out their little scroll and they would share it with the person and begin sharing the word of God in that way and opening up people's hearts and minds. Of course, eventually their hideouts got known about and not content with having them up in the mountains in such few numbers, some of them were Sabbath keepers. The recognized church at the time sent forth armies to go and persecute them and attack them, drove them into caves where they then lit fires outside the cave and either smoked them dead inside or they came running out and killed them as they came out, took them over to cliffs, cast them off of cliffs, cast them to the deaths, men, women, children, didn't matter, if they were not of the recognized faith, then they were persecuted 
through this time. But the Waldensians brought back the importance of the Word of God, reading the Word of God. Wycliffe is another example. We talked about him a different week. Wycliffe translating the Bible into English language so people can read it. And so we have a Reformation taking place coming out of the Dark Ages, step by step by step. Again, we didn't go down all at once. We don't come out all at once. Another example, after Wycliffe comes along Huss, John Huss. And he believed the writings of Wycliffe and began to teach it and share it and preach it. Jerome became a believer as a result too, of faith as well in the gospel. And Huss then is taken and burned at the stake and killed alive, burned alive. Wycliffe, they hated so much, they dug up his bones and burned his bones. But, why, but us, they burn alive, flesh and bones together. While he's still breathing and he dies singing hymns and praising God. So us taught obedience to the word of God. That we have the word of God and we need to live the word of God. He's become real in our lives. And we continue in our time period and our history lesson. Luther comes along. Now, Luther had his problems. He had his issues. Of course, full light wasn't shown upon him yet, but he was growing, and God still used him. He wrote some horrible things about the Jews and, and other issues that he had, but, uh, but God still used him. He nailed his 95 Thesis onto the door. The 95 Thesis was on one doctrine, one teaching, indulgences. Here's my 95 reasons why indulgences are wrong. <laughs> 95 reasons for one doctrine. This is what's wrong with it. And if anyone disagrees with me, let's have a discussion about it. He thought we are going to have a nice debate. We're going to have a nice discussion. Here's my reasons. I'll give you a heads up of where I'm coming from. Here's my arguments. If you can, I'll give you some time. You look over my arguments, refute it, and let's meet together on this date, and let's have a discussion. The authorities didn't want a discussion. They didn't want a debate. <laughs> they sent forth an army to persecute him and try and kill him. Edicts and condemnations, and amazingly, he survives. He's able to translate the Bible into German, the language of the people where he was at. And so because of Luther, we have righteousness by faith, salvation by grace, right? And so he brings grace into our mix here. Again, he doesn't know everything. He doesn't have all the light. We continue on. John Calvin. John Calvin was a teacher also at around Luther's time. The two of them got together and had some meetings together, discussions together, disagreed on some things. But Calvin brought some important faith, important doctrines, important truth to light as well, including that we need to continue to grow in grace. We need to become sanctified. We need to continue to grow in our walk with the Lord, step by step, moment by moment, not just saved by grace and leave it there, but we need to continue to grow in our walk with God. And so the Presbyterians came out of that. Then we have the Anabaptists, and they lived also around this time and began to believe that in the Word of God that we should be immersed, and not just as children, and not just sprinkled, not just babies sprinkled, but as accountability, when we reach an age of accountability, when we reach an age of, of knowledge, uh, and that's kind of like what we have with the Bar and Bat Mitzvah, child comes to an age where they can reason, can discern, can make decisions on their own, and reason that way, become a son of the commandment. And so baptism, when a person is old enough to make these kind of decisions for themselves, and so that's what the Anabaptists taught. And so thus we have today's Baptist. Now, John Robinson, an Anabaptist, anyone know who John Robinson is? Not Frank Robinson, not Frankie Robinson. John Robinson. I'll give you a hint there. There's a hint there in the picture. He was the minister for the pilgrims. Thanksgiving's coming up. You guys should know that. All right, yeah, John Robinson. And this is one of the things he told them as they were departing. If God should reveal anything to you by any other instrument of his, be as ready to receive it as ever you were ready to receive any truth of my ministry. Okay, so God continues to teach you, receive it. 
For I am very confident the Lord has more truth and light yet to break forth out of his holy word. They were burning lights, referring to the reformers prior to him. They were burning lights and shining lights in their time, yet they penetrated not into the whole counsel of God, but were they now living, would be as willing to embrace further light as that which they first received. So he believed that if Huss and others were alive in his day, learning what he learned and knew what he knew, they also would come to faith. So again, then the pilgrims left and took the faith to the United States. So we have now the Baptists coming along and teaching immersion. So we have this step-by-step growth. But the reason we have so many denominations is because contrary to what John Robinson told them, each group, a portion of each group, decided to stay where they were. So the Lutherans said, no, 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 we're okay here. Yeah, okay, you Baptists have a baptism, but, you know, and that's nice for you guys, but not for us. Some obviously did. Some Lutherans became Anabaptists, but some did not. And so then we still have the Lutherans. So it's kind of this evolution where you, but you have some still staying in where they're at. And as John Robinson believed, if they were alive, they would, the leaders would, but the people did not. And so they stagnated at each step, thus we still have. So God has used each one to take us out of the dark ages, but God purposed that we would grow in each step of learning in our lives. Now, he mentioned they were shining lights, and if they had the light, they would be revealed to them. Well, what happens when we come into bright light? Why does God do it this way? Why did God do it step by step in this gradual process? What happens if you're in a dark room? Have you ever been in a dark room? Have you ever been in the garage or something like that, or in some dark closet or something, or in some shed or something like that? And you, or you work the night shift, and so you're sleeping during the day, you got the shades closed, and then you wake up, and you open a shade, and the bright sunlight comes in. What is our first reaction to that type of thing? Right, yeah, we, we shield our eyes. We close our eyes. Right, so if God was to reveal all of his light at one time, instead of receiving the light, we would repulse from the light. We would recoil from the light. We would reject the light. We'd cover our eyes. We'd cover our hearts. We'd cover our minds from receiving the light. That's why God allows the sun to come up gradually, as the Bible says, uh, more and more to the perfect day. So God's light, God's truth, shines upon our heart little by little by little, right? And we know this from our own walks, right? Many of us have walked this way. God taught us something in one stage of our life, in one place in our life, and then he took us and he took us to another place where we learn more, took us to another where we learn more, and we continue to grow and grow and grow. That's how it should be and not stagnating, but learning and continuing in our walk with God and sharing it with others in our experience with God. And so we have sanctification taking place. Then we have John Wesley and Charles Wesley coming along, and they come to the United States, and they begin to share their faith. They become circuit riders and driving, riding around and sharing the word of God where they go. And they brought holiness that we should live holy lives, that we should live for God, and that we should live godly lives. Right? If we're going to continue in the faith and grow in the faith and believe and, and have faith in the Lord, right? So each of these things are adding and adding and adding and adding, then it should be lived out and lived out more and more so. So we have saved by grace, we have justification, just as if we never sinned. Right? That takes place in a moment, that takes place instantly. It took place actually when Yeshua died for us. And he died for us as the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. So it took place with one event, Yeshua's event, for the entire world. The entire world has been given justification. We receive that in a moment, in a second, as we believe by faith in what Yeshua has done for us. And we accept that into our lives. That takes place instantaneously. But then it continues on in the second part of salvation. It's all one salvation with two aspects to it, the justification part and the sanctification part, that growing in holiness part. And that takes place over a lifetime. We continue to grow. We should continue to advance in our walk 
with the Lord. And he should change us. We should be able to look at our lives if we've been believers for any more than two years, five years, ten years. We should be able to look back and say, oh yes, this is how I, where I was and now this is where I'm at. I know more of the word of God. I'm living more. I'm more victorious. Satan has less of a hold of me. I have more self-control, more uh, faith in God's word, more trust, yield to less temptations. God growing us by his power. Less fears, less anxiety, more trust, more faith. We have people like William Miller and uh, Josiah Litch and Joseph Wolf taking the message to many parts of the world that the Lord is coming again soon. Prior to his time, the common belief, almost universal belief, was we're entering into a time of peace. We're entering into a millennial of peace, that the millennium is going to come. And that went along with what the world was doing, because the word of God was being translated, the word of God was being printed, the word of God was being spread, thus light is coming into the world and into people's minds, and they're becoming enlightened. And as we expand our minds, and the word of God helps us to do that, becoming liberated from the dead formality of the dead faith, and so people start thinking and creativity starts coming. And then we have medical advancements. We have educational advancements. We have industrial advancements. And so things are prospering. Things are moving forward. Things are growing. Things are advancing. And so as often happens, people of faith following the world, they say, oh, look, things are getting better and better and better. And so things are going to continue to get better. And we're going to usher in a time of peace. There's going to be peace on earth. There's going to be peace on earth for a thousand years. And then these guys come along and say, no, 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 we were reading the Bible. We were looking at these Daniel prophecies. And no, the Lord is coming, and he's coming soon. He's coming before some peaceful time. And actually, it's going to get worse before he comes. Direct contrast to what was taught then, and yet that is the common teaching today, that the Lord is coming soon. The second coming, he's going to come and bring us to heaven with him. Then we have the Jews. The Jews again continued along this line through this time period. And well, another thing with the Jews, they did, when that enlightenment period started happening, prior to that time, they basically continued all those years with the traditions and the word of God that they were following. But then we come along to the enlightenment time and they start to compromise. And we have a reform movement coming and a backlash to a conservative movement coming and many giving up their faith in their prosperity. So that's another attack of the devil. Right? So when the persecutions stop and then ease and plenty and prosperity happens, we can lose our faith as well. But the Jews and Adventists and Messianics maintained the Sabbath and clean and unclean foods, and other teachings and other doctrines. And so a step-by-step step growing in grace, God revealing things and re-revealing things and opening up his light, opening up his word, opening up his truth. And so again, the reason we have so many denominations is because people did not continue to grow along the ladder, along the spectrum. But they said, no, we're okay right where we're at. We don't need to advance anymore. We don't need to learn anything more. And so thus, they're still here. And so, uh, like, contrary to the evolution teaching and the evolution, we do have missing links. So we, do, we don't have missing links, we have the links. Right? They're all the links from faith to faith to faith to faith. They're all there. It's still there today. And again, many of us have gone through that kind of a process as well, and that walking in that steps, and we need to continue to walk in the word of the Lord, and continue to grow in his truth. So now into the next seal, Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. I looked, and when he opened the sixth seal, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became like blood, and the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its late figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Now we looked at these prophecies. that These have all taken place already. They may all happen again, Maybe all like one time in one fast thing. 
But we've seen these happen step by step, a few years apart, that in order, there was a great earthquake, the Lisbon earthquake. Again, we looked at that. I think it was Daniel chapter 12 we looked at these things. A great earthquake, and then the sun became black, dark day, and then the moon became blood red that same night, and then another event taking place, the meteor shower, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as figs dropped its late figs. Right, so that takes us again to this time period just where we're at. And so this is where we're at. These things have happened, and where we are in the seal timeline is we are in the sixth seal. We are right between verse 13, those have already taken place, and verse 14. There's only three more verses left. This is where we're at. We're at the very end of time. And that, again, is the purpose of these prophecies, is to show us where we are in the continuum of prophecy, in these timeline of these seals. We're at the very end. As we did Daniel chapter, 12, uh, chapter 11, we saw there was only five more verses left, a very long chapter, 40-something verses. Most of these things, and that's what we've looked at. If we're looking at Revelation, we're going to see the majority of Revelation has already taken place. There's only very little left to happen. And so the next verse says, And the sky receded as a scroll, and every mountain and island was moved out of its place, and the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rock and the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This is where we're at. So those events had already taken place that we saw up to verse 13. Those first five and a half seals have already taken place. Then the next thing that's described is the Lord coming and him separating the sheep and the goats, the wicked running and hiding, mountains fall on us, and the righteous unworthy, believing unworthy, saying, who is able to stand before him? And the wicked running and hiding, hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb. I always love reading that. The wrath of the Lamb. Right? I don't know how many lamb... Farmers we have here, right? We're not even talking about a goat. We're not even talking about a sheep here. We're talking about a little lamb. An innocent little lamb, right? I, you know, never seen a wrath of a lamb, right? Big teeth, you know, like uh, Monty Python's little bunny rabbit going and attacking people, right? <laughs> Is this lamb going and attacking people? No, these little lambs, harmless lambs, hopping along in the grass, right? Hide us from the face. It doesn't say hide us from the face of the Lion of Judah but from the wrath of the Lamb, because he comes as the Lamb. It's the Lamb, it's his presence as the Lamb that brings conviction to the heart, and that's what they're hiding from. If he came as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, well, what would our nature do? We'd fight back. Oh, we can fight against the Lion. We get tough against conviction, against the Lion, against his force, force for force, but when he comes with love and it brings conviction, when we see truth, when we see righteousness, it melts our hearts and we have no defense. So we run and we hide from it. As Adam and Eve did when God came to them, where are you, where are you? Their guilt overwhelmed them and they ran. When God started confronting them, they started excusing and lying and blaming. But when he came in love, they ran. And that's what we see. He comes as the lamb, and it's his love that repulses or attracts. It draws us. Who can stand before you? I'm unworthy. Depart from me. I'm an unworthy man. Right? But still calling to him and looking for him. And loving his appearing. But the wicked are running and hiding from his love, from his forgiveness, from his grace, from his truth. The wrath of the Lamb. And so then it ends, this chapter ends with verse 17, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So it asks this question, who is able to stand? 
And so before it gets to the seventh seal, it needs to answer that question. And the entirety of chapter 7 is the answer of who is able to stand. And we're not going to do that tonight, but next time when we look at that, who is able to stand? We're going to read of what type of character we need to have, what we need to be like in order to be able to stand at that last day. In order to be able to stand at his appearing, stand before his grace, stand before his throne, stand before the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that's chapter, we'll get into chapter 7. So we're going to now jump chapter 7, we'll go through that another time, and we'll get to the seventh seal, which starts chapter 8. And again, the divisions of the chapters weren't there originally. But chapter 8, verse 1, And when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And that's it. That's all it says about the seventh seal. One short verse. So I think it should have been put at least with chapter 7 or, or whatever, but it ends there, or chapter 7, chapter, could just continue with chapter 6, because chapter 7 is kind of like a parenthesis. And so he does chapter 6, and he says, who's able to stand? And then you have this parenthesis of, well, who is that who's able to stand? And then when he explains that, then he's able to go into chapter, or the seventh seal, and the seventh seal is heaven silent for half an hour. So now why is it silent for half an hour? But before we get to why, let's discover how long is a half an hour. How long is a half an hour? 30 minutes, okay, that's one way to look at it. How else can we look at it? What? Prophetic. prophetic, so how long is a half an hour? This is in Revelation, so prophetic is a good idea. How long is a half an hour? 124th, close. 148th, right. There's 24 hours in a day, right? And so with 24 hours a day, we're talking about a half an hour. So there's 48 half hours in a day, right? Following that, okay? So 148th of a day. And how long is a day in Bible prophecy? One year, right? If you missed that, we did that in Daniel chapter 7, I think, or 8 or 9. Uh, we looked at the verses on that. It's in all of them. The time prophecies, there's a day, of time prophecy, a day equals a year, right? And so a year, so what's 148th of a year? Very good. All right, very good. A week and a half, yeah. How many weeks in a year? 52, right? Yeah, so 48 is close to 52, so, there's, so it's about a week and a little bit, right? So... Very good. So about a week, a little more than a week. So why now would heaven be silent for about a week? Why would it be silent? What did we read at the end of the sixth seal? What was taking place at the end of the sixth seal? What? Well, yes, but some, what's the event that's taking place at the end of the sixth seal? Yeshua is coming, right? And so when Yeshua comes, who comes? Yes? All of heaven. He comes with all of his angels in the glory of the Father, right? So heaven empties out to come to redeem humanity. Not that all of heaven is needed to deliver us. One angel could deliver us. But he empties all heaven. Can you imagine? Let's say you're, you're, you go away, you're away on a trip, you're away for a long time, work type of thing, you're in the military, you're gone for several years or something like that, and you're flying home, and your spouse or a family member or a friend says they're going to pick you up at the airport. Right? And so you're expecting your friend to pick you up at the airport, and you get there, and your friend is not there, or at least not alone, He's there, and everyone you know is there, right? All the, all your whole family, your friends, they've all come out, and they got banners, welcome home, right? So this big celebration, right? How would that make you feel? Right? There was a story of, uh, of a missionary who was gone for years and years and years, and, and, he, and, he, and he comes back, and I think it was back when there was boats, and he comes back on the ship, and he enters into the harbor, and there's all these people there, and they're cheering, and he's... Oh, he's so filled with emotion. All my years were appreciated. 
They came out to greet me. And as they get closer and closer and closer, he sees the banner, and the banner has someone else's name on it, and it was some actor or some guy or something on the ship also. And then he's disheartened, and he's thinking, God, isn't there anyone here to welcome me home? And the thought comes into his mind, child, you're not home yet. Right? But how do we feel, right, when we have that kind of welcome? And we will be going home on that day. And so they all come to welcome us home. They all come to bring us home. Yeshua comes, the glory of the Father and the Holy Spirit, and all the angels come. The wicked are destroyed. The devil is bound up. All the wicked angels are bound up. The Lord himself descends from heaven with the shout, with the voice of the archangel. And the dead and Messiah begin to rise. And we which are alive and remain are caught up. The angels go from one end of the earth to the other to gather the elect. And they begin to gather the resurrected, righteous, dead, and those that are living and alive and gather us together to meet the Lord in the air. And he takes us to the mansions he's preparing for us. Isn't that beautiful? All of heaven empties out. So they're silent in heaven. It's silent because there's no one there. So why a week and a half? Maybe it takes us that long to journey home. Not that it needs to, but God takes his time and we journey home and he meets with us along the way and he talks to us and teaches us and meets with us as he's taking us home. And we stop a few places along the way. Now, if it takes seven and a half days, takes a little more than a week, well, what does that mean had to take place during that week, during that travel? There had to be a Sabbath. There had to be a Sabbath along the way. And so everyone, if again, we're elaborating here, and not all this is in this verse, but we're just kind of reasoning it out. And if that's true, then that would mean that everyone, before we enter into the gates of the New Jerusalem, everyone would have rested for at least one Sabbath in their life before they enter into the gates. We'll have one Sabbath with the Lord somewhere along the way, maybe on Pluto, maybe further out, I don't know, somewhere out there. We'll stop and take a break on our seven-day journey to heaven. And so the seventh seal, silence in heaven, for half an hour. Well, maybe that's what it means. Maybe it means that they're bowing and having a silent moment for us in thankfulness. I don't know. You know, but I like that. Uh, I like how that uh, the theory plays out. But that's it. That's the seven seals. Taking us step by step from John's day. Yeshua beginning with the conquering white horse and ending as the conqueror, coming forth to take his bride home with him. The seven seals. Now, another interesting way of looking at this, Gloria shared this with me. We look at them in the light of Matthew 24. Matthew 24 is uh, a problem. Yeshua, they asked Yeshua, what's it going to be like when you come? And, and when will, he says the Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. When will that be? And what will be the signs of your coming? And he gives an outline. And this outline goes over the, basically this timeline too. Now, let's look at it. The first horseman, the, the first seal, Yeshua said, take heed that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and will deceive many. Right? So there were false messiahs. We had Bar Kokhba come and others come, saying they were the Messiah. And of course, if you have false messiahs, then that means you had to have had the true messiah, right? to have the counterfeit. And so the true messiah was there, and they were going forth and conquering, and there was a false counter as well. Second seal the horsemen, the red horsemen, the persecution. Next verse, Yeshua says, verse 6, Matthew 24, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Be not troubled. All these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation. There'll be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. And all these are the beginning of sorrows. And they will deliver you up into tribulation and to kill you. And will, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Right, so red persecuting time in our time period from about 100 to 313 or so. 
Third seal, third horseman, the compromise. Next verse, Matthew 24, verse 11. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So deception, compromise, falsehood coming from within. Right? False prophets rise up from within and deceiving many. We just saw that. Fourth seal, the fourth horseman, the death, the dark ages, verse 12. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. Right? And so what happens when love grows cold? The heart grows cold. What happens? What happens to someone if their heart, no love, heart grows cold? You die. Yeah, you're dead. Right? So they're dead. And because of lawlessness, what does lawlessness mean? Toralist, right. So what does that mean? No law. And what happened during that time? The law was done away. They discounted the law, changed the law. No law, no law of God. Make our own festivals, our own precepts. Ignoring the Torah, ignoring the word of God. And that's what he said. There'll be lawlessness, and thus coldness will abound, death, force. Fifth seal, coming out of the dark ages, martyrs. Matthew 24, verse 13. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Right? So the light started to come on. There were those who endured through the persecution. We read Waldensians, Haas, Luther, others. Those who maintained the Jewish faith through lots of persecution, lots of trial, continued with the Torah, continued with the word of God. Blindness in part happened to them as well, but the scales are coming off as well, a slow process for them as well, and the Messiah is being revealed as well. Sixth seal, signs in heaven, who can stand? Matthew 24, verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a testimony to all nations. Right? So the gospel going to the world, bringing about the last sign. For when this gospel is preached in all the world, then the end shall come. Seven seals, silence in heaven, the Lord returns. Matthew 24, verse 14, and then the end will come. And so the seven seals through Matthew 24, or the time periods from Yeshua's day to his coming again, outlined in sequence in Matthew 24. Pretty interesting, too. Okay, and then here's our timeline, a little hard to see, but there we go. So Daniel 2 there, the green, and the red on the top, you got our time periods from Daniel's day all the way to the Lord's coming. So Daniel 2, going with the divisions of the statue. Daniel 7, the four beasts and the six segments of it. We've got the 1,260 years in there. Time period, Daniel 8 and 9. Same timeline, some more time periods in there, Daniel 10 through 12, same timeline, again the 1,260 years in there, all the way to the second coming, and then the Revelation 2, the green, going the seven congregations from John's day to the end of time, and then Revelation 6 and 7, the first verse of 8, from the white horse, the seven seals, we're basically paralleling, all of them paralleling, all of them going together, all of them covering the basic same time periods, all teaching and expounding in the same areas of earth's history, where God's people is, where faith is interacted with, where the word of God is affected, is where this, the prophecies follow. Over layer after layer after layer after layer. And we're going to see that next with the trumpets as we go through Revelation. Okay, let's have prayer together and close with that. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, we are thankful for your word and thank you for your truth. Thank you that you have outlined for us where we are in our history. Thank you that you didn't take a break for 2,000 years. You've been active. Your word has revealed every time period from Adam and Eve to your coming so we can know and everyone's important to you. And we can know where we stand and we knew that they knew where they stood. We're able to and so, Lord, thank you for taking us to this time period. Thank you that you haven't left us alone. Thank you that you are coming again. Thank you that you love us with an everlasting love. And we're looking forward to your coming. Give us the ability to stand. Give us endurance to endure to the end. Fill us with faith. Grow us step by step. Take us out of the darkness of our lives. And if we've backslidden, if we've fallen back, 
draw us up to you, draw us onto you, bring us onto you, draw us with your love, the love of the Lamb. Take us step by step, deliver us from plateauing. May we grow in your grace and openness to follow the next things that you have in store for us. Continue to gain us from victory to victory, from conquering and conquer, to conquer. Lead and direct in our lives. And may we be ready and may you use us taking this gospel to the world and sharing it with others. In Yeshua's holy name, amen.